Well, good morning, everybody. Um, so we're going to be starting this month with a first lesson in a much bigger series that I did an introduction to a couple weeks ago. Um, we're going to be going through the book of Numbers, which, um, kind of like I mentioned with Genesis, it is a lesson filled with many things that I think can be overlooked that are very rich, very important lessons that equip us in our relationship with God. And we looked at in the introductory lesson how um, in the New Testament we see passages that actually even directly talk about the time when Israel is in the wilderness in a very relevant way, um, the time frame covered in this book. Numbers is a very diverse book. I think probably one of the most diverse books of the Bible, um, just in terms of the literature contained inside of it. Um, So Numbers, as we're going to be reading this morning, it has census literature where the people of Israel are numbered. Um, It has historical events. It has laws. It has holidays that are covered. Um, It'll deal with sacrifices. It'll deal with inheritance. Um, So there's just, there's a lot of variety of different aspects of literature that are all covered, even prophecy in the book of Numbers. So it's going to be a very exciting um, book just to kind of look through it and understand lessons that we can pull out of these different aspects of literature. Um, But we're going to be starting with the title of this lesson being A People Centered Around God. And that's going to make more sense as we continue um, in the lesson this morning. Um, I just want to kind of put back into your your mind the timing of where we are. So it's about a year after Israel has left Egypt. So God delivered um, the nation of Israel from Egyptian slavery. And they had a short journey uh, to the mountain of Sinai. And that's actually where they still are. Um, If you're interested in marking it in your Bibles, if you look at chapter 10, verse 11 and 12, that's actually the first time they leave Mount Sinai. So when you read Numbers, and maybe some things you, you maybe kind of know generally about it, that it's wandering in the wilderness, you may think that the book just picks up with them leaving and journeying, But that's actually not the case. The first nine chapters are actually still covering preparations where they actually haven't even left Mount Sinai yet. So just take note of that, that they don't actually leave until chapter 10. But what's happened so far? Again, I I mentioned that they've, they've left Egypt. They've already gone on a short journey to come to Mount Sinai. They've entered into a national covenant with God as God appeared on the mountain. And the next order of business was for God to give them a law, a national law, and for them to build a tent, a tabernacle, where God would dwell among the nation in a very tangible and visible way to represent God being with the nation like a king or a commander of an army camping among his people. And so the tabernacle is built, set up, and finished at the very end of the book of Exodus, And then Leviticus takes place, establishing the sons of Aaron, Aaron and his sons, as the priesthood. And then we get to the book of Numbers now. So they're a nation in a covenant with God. They have their law. They have the tabernacle built where God is now dwelling among them. And they have an established priesthood as well. That's where the the book of Numbers picks up. So now as they're anticipating leaving Mount Sinai, God is going to number the people and organize the people. 
So we're going to begin with looking at how the people were centered around God. Um, Next month, Lord willing, we're going to look at a few chapters dealing with the values and priorities God is encouraging before they leave to remind them of the priority and the value they're to place on his presence, the relationship with him. And then in March, we'll begin with when they move and when they begin to complain and murmur in the wilderness. We're going to obviously be doing a lot of summarizing, so this isn't going to be like detailed exposition. We're not going to obviously be reading chapters 1 through 4, but what I am going to be doing is trying to give an idea of what happens within these chapters, and we'll be drawing lessons out of those things. All right. So getting into the body of the lesson, um, this is kind of a representation of what we're going to see here. And I'll put an even simpler image on the board here in just a second. But you have 12 tribes, and these 12 tribes are put into four camps on the north, east, south, and west side. And the tabernacle there, the tent where God was visibly dwelling with his people, that's where the pillar of fire by night would be, where the pillar of the cloud by night would be. So the tabernacle is in the center of the camp. That's what we're going to see. And then around that camp is God very specifically designating where each tribe of Israel was to be. Look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And I'll read this to kind of introduce this. Chapter 1, Numbers chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, so that's that tabernacle that they had built, on the first of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel by their families, by their fathers' households, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from 20 years old and upward, whoever is able to go out to war in Israel, you and Aaron shall number them by their armies." So, okay, so this is the idea in terms of what I'm going to be using to kind of walk through this. But I think this is a really helpful illustration, maybe, of what this would have actually looked like. So you've got, like, these two, like, you know, imaginary shepherd people looking at this. So in the middle there, you have the tabernacle again. And you would have had tribe by tribe, 12 tribes, each in a section kind of grouped together on the north, south, east, and west. And the number that this would have been, if you were noticing in the scripture reading, look at verse 46. So the number of men who could go out to war from 20 years old and upward, 603,550. So I've heard estimates that this could have been, so okay, you're you're now thinking for a total number. men 20 years old and upward who are capable of going to war over 600,000. So if you're including like elderly people, people who couldn't fight, women and children, so that would have been anyone less than 20 years old, we might be talking like 2 to 3 million people, maybe even 4 million people. So this is an enormous group of people that God is bringing together and organizing as this massive amount of people are about to start wandering to the land promised to them through a wilderness that God calls a very dreadful and terrifying environment. This is a place where there wouldn't have been food or water, and so they're going to be completely depending on God entirely to provide literally everything they need as they are going through this wilderness. And you imagine as they're passing by nations, they're going to be seeing this huge crowd of people, very orderly in the way that they're structured, 
just kind of progressively marching closer and closer. And there we find out they've heard the report of Egypt. So you have this slave people coming out of this destroyed nation of Egypt. And now they're marching into the land of Canaan to take that over and conquer the people there as well. So again, here's what we're going to be seeing kind of in a general sense, but now chapter by chapter. So we're going to be looking at chapters one and two because these are the chapters that first they deal with Israel. So chapters one and two is numbering the tribes and positioning the tribes. And in verse 47, by the way, the scripture reading like literally summarizes all four chapters. So that like, that's just kind of a perfect picture of basically what we're going to be talking about, what we looked at in the scripture reading. But verse 47, the Levites are not included in the numbering in chapters 1 and 2. They are numbered separately in chapter 3 and chapter 4. So we'll cover those two chapters generally after we look at the first two. All right. So we have 603,500 people that God is organizing. And I know it's a lot of numbers in the first chapter, and I know we're kind of cheating, like I'm not actually going to read this. But I want to encourage you about why it's important to like read a chapter like this, even though it's not what we're doing this morning exactly. Um, numbers tend to matter to us when it's something that we either really like and we really care about, or if it's something that we're just very invested in. So a lot of us, maybe it's like sports, or maybe it's prices, right? Maybe we have a hobby where we know the numbers of things, we know the amount of things, and it's not because we're getting paid for it, it's not because it's our job. We just, we know the numbers, and the numbers matter to us because we care about it. Or I've had a job that was dealing with finances, and I had to know a lot of different numbers, and so there were a lot of things that I just kind of memorized and understood, and numbers that were actually very important to me because it was very relevant to a work that I was doing, right? So what's more important to God than his people, right? So if we love God, then we learn to love and prioritize things that matter to God. And so that can make things in the Bible that can seem at first very dry and irrelatable, much more approachable, just kind of by understanding this should be important to me because obviously these are important things to God. People are important to God and therefore God numbers the people. But I also want you to think about a very redundant question here. This is a huge amount of people. Is it easier to deal with problems in a group if the group is organized or if the group is disorganized? So Peggy and Hannah are teachers, specifically little children, right? So that they can tell you, I think, I'm pretty confident they'll say, well, when it's organized and there's some kind of structure, it's a lot easier to deal with problems. Well, how about when a problem has happened, being able to call things into order and deal with the problem? Is it easier to deal with the problem when it's happened? And is it easier to call things back and to um, be able to give instruction and to be able to be followed if there's organization or if things are disorganized? What's easier? And again, those are very obvious questions, right? But God is anticipating, this isn't gonna be an easy journey, right? Numbers is a famous book because there's a lot of problems that God has to deal with with his people in the book of Numbers. And what makes it reasonable and easier to deal with, not just for God, but for the layers of leadership that he's cultivating, is that things are structured and things are organized. One more thing that I might um, put forward here that may be helpful. 
just kind of like reading some articles about, you know, teachers and people who have experience with organizing things. Because yeah, I think it's, you know, side note, it's kind of helpful to think that as much as like this was like a military group marching, these were also like children. So like Israel was in its infancy, infancy here, right? And so they were having to learn very basic lessons as they were beginning as a nation. So here are some things that some teachers and some people say that give reason for why structure helps groups, especially groups of children. It saves time. It helps foresee problems. It helps people deal with their worries, their, uncert- their uncertainties, and to keep their anxieties under control. It helps people experience less stress. It helps people to be more efficient and productive, to conserve their energy, to gain emotional stability, and to simplify their day-to-day tasks. So just think about that array of things. Are, Are those important things for Israel to learn with God? Is it important for God to help Israel with all the crazy things they're about to deal with, to have some sense of stability, structure, conscientiousness of things, be able to deal with problems. I think those are all really important things. So in chapter one, again, we have tribe by tribe and just something noteworthy in verse 27, Judah was numbered 74,600. That's the biggest tribe in all of Israel. And think, why is Judah important? Judah is going to be the tribe that Jesus is going to come from and the kings are going to come from ultimately. One more interesting thing with Judah here, if you look back in verse 7, Nashon, the son of Amminadab, the leader who would oversee the numbering of Judah, Nashon is in Matthew chapter 1 in the lineage of Jesus Christ. So there are some important things kind of hidden within this. Again, this potentially dry reading that actually when you think about the bigger picture of things, there's some fairly significant things here, some good lessons to learn. So 603,550 people. And in chapter 2, these groups are each given a sequential order for when they were to leave Mount Sinai and when they were to leave their camp. And it was kind of like walking in a straight line in a way. Um, So I want to look at chapter 2. And again, just kind of generally, generally thinking about these things. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, The sons of Israel shall camp, each by his own standard, with the banners of their father's household. They shall camp around the tent of meeting at a distance. So progressively from that point forward in chapter 2, God is appointing tribes together to leave and depart and pack up in a very specific order. So Judah and the tribes associated with Judah, they're going to leave on the east. And then Dan, Reuben, Ephraim, these tribes, they're each going to leave in their own order. The tabernacle, the priests in the middle, they're going to leave in their own order. You see that in verse 17. So everything is happening in a structured, God-ordained, orderly way couple more things about this that I think are helpful. So chapter one, we kind of were thinking about general structure. But with chapter two, I want to think about the importance of like walking in a line. 
So another thing I was reading a lot about is teachers who would talk about the benefit of having their students walk in an orderly line to get from one place to another, especially if they were like on a field trip and going through like hazardous environments, you know, really needing their kids to recognize like, hey, it's safe if you stay in this certain parameter here and stay behind each other um, and even hold hands. What does it do for the nation for God to shepherd them in this way, for God to command them in this way? Number one, God is creating layers of accountability. So not only did he number the people, the, the men specifically aged 20 years and upward, and I've kind of put a note here for that. Um, so God is clearly concerned about the individuals within his camp. And those individuals, I think, have a responsibility to those who are not numbered, who would have been like dependents. But God's concerned about the individual. And I think God, in creating order, is giving the leadership within the nation to be able to oversee things in a way where there would be layers of leadership and accountability within the camp. And so God is equipping each tribe and each section of that tribe to be able to know where each person is, to know where they are, and to be able to have clear measures of accountability as they're going through the, the wilderness. So that's number one. God is creating measures of accountability. And that's what teachers tend to say about straight lines is, one thing it really helps with is just accountability and orderliness. Number two is safety. Them doing this in an orderly way makes it easier to communicate. It encourages communication. It encourages communication within tribes, communication with the priests, the Levites. And what we find in the book of Numbers is God wants communication and God encourages communication, right? And so safety is number two. And God is going to be uh, shepherding his people through a dangerous environment. But number three, and this is, I think, one of the really big things, is it encourages respectfulness that each individual is a part of a higher picture, a higher purpose, and really needs to see the bigger picture of what they're a part of. This was not a me-first community that God was creating here. So the individuals, they are very important, right? Each individual. But this is not a me-first community. This is a body that God has created, an interworking body. And so the individuals within that body needed to be respectful and conscientious that they were a part of something much more important than just themselves all alone. And they needed to work with that body for that higher purpose that God was leading. So let's go to chapter 3 and 4 and think about the Levites here. So this would be in the center, and I'll kind of explain what's in the orange with like Merari, the framework, well, and even like what these names mean. Um, so we'll, we'll read some of chapter 3 here. But this is what we're going to see is closer to the tabernacle camped the Levites, which were a special tribe set aside by God. So let's read about that in chapter 3. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 13 here, so just a little bit of a longer reading. Chapter 3, 1 through 13. Now these are the records of the generations of Aaron and Moses at the time when the Lord spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. These then are the names of the sons of Aaron, Nadab the firstborn, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed priests, whom he ordained, whom he ordained to serve as priests. So time out really quick. Um, 
all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. So the only people, literally the only ones who could serve as priests specifically were Aaron and his direct descendants. Nobody else. So if a Levite wanted to be a priest, but he's not descended from Aaron, no deal. Doesn't mean the Levites weren't a holy people, a special people, but we're going to keep reading about that. But just remember, priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. So verse 4, Now Nadab and Abihu, these are two of Aaron's sons, died before the Lord when they offered strange fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai, and they had no children. So Eleazar and Ithamar served as priests in the lifetime of their father Aaron. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest that they may serve him. They shall perform the duties for him and for the whole congregation before the tent of meeting to do the service of the tabernacle. They shall also keep all the furnishings of the tent of meeting along with the duties of the sons of Israel to do the service of the tabernacle. You shall thus give the Levites to Aaron and to his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the sons of Israel. So you shall appoint Aaron and his sons that they may keep their priesthood. But the layman, that means anybody who's not a Levite or a priest, but the layman who comes near shall be put to death. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Now behold, I have taken the Levites from among the sons of Israel instead of every firstborn, the first issue of the womb among the sons of Israel. So the Levites shall be mine. For all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified to myself all the firstborn in Israel from man to beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. Um, We'll get a little bit more into that firstborn thing in in just a minute. So in verse 14 through 20, what's outlined is that Levi, the literal person Levi, kind of like um, Joseph, Uh, Judah, Benjamin, so like the fathers of the tribes of Israel. The person Levi had three sons. In verse uh, 18, Gershon. 19, Kohath. 20, Merari. So you have in the north of the tabernacle, Merari, which would be the tribal group from that son of Levi, they were to camp north of the tabernacle, and they were to carry the framework of the tabernacle and they would move. We'll talk more about that in a minute. West would be Gershon. They would carry the the tapestries, the cloth, the coverings. Kohath would would carry the holy objects, the Ark of the Covenant, the table of showbread, altar, things like that. Um, And Aaron also, Moses and Aaron both were from Kohath specifically. Um, So they're numbered in this context from one month old, verse 15, number the sons of Israel by their father's household, by their families, every male, from a month old and upward you shall number them. So this is a little bit different. So on the bottom left here, how this happens is in chapter 3, the Levites are numbered first from one month old and upward, and that number turns out to be about 22,000 individuals, so significantly less, obviously, than the entire tribal number of the Israelites. By the way, something interesting, the priests aren't numbered, but they kind of are. Um, I want you to think in your mind, how many priests do you guess there would be, right? 603,000 Israelites, men, 
Um, 22,000 Levites a month old and upward. How many priests do you think there are? Um, in verse 2, it's three. There are three priests. Three for 603,000 men 20 years old and upward. Like two, three million people, three priests. Do you see why they might need 22,000 people to like help them with that task and kind of go through Israel and understand, help them understand the importance of the tabernacle and everything involved with their relationship with the priests? Speaking of relationship with the priests, at the end of chapter 3, verse 40 through 51, God returns back to this firstborn thing, and he has them number every firstborn of Israel, and he numbers that against the Levites that he just numbered. So imagine how much time that would take. Okay, well, now we've got to go back. We've got to go back through Israel, and now we need to find the firstborn of each house, and we've got to calculate that number. Well, they did it, and in verse 43... It's 22,273. And for the extra 273, they've got to pay a redemption price for that extra number in Israel that exceeds the number of Levites. I know that's a lot of information, but I think there's a very simple lesson in that. The firstborn of Israel, it's like the Levites were replacing them. The firstborn, God said, belonged to him. I think the existence of Israel, they owe their existence to the Levites and their work. Israel owes their existence. They owe their existence and their freedom to the Levites and their work. Well, what are the Levites doing? Why is that so important? It's the work of redemption, forgiveness, mercy, atonement, holiness. Israel owes its existence to the existence of the Levites and their work. Do you think that's an important lesson? I think there's an important lesson there for us that we're going to come back to at the, at the end of the lesson. The work of the Levites was critical and it was so critical for Israel to value what the Levites were appointed to do. So let's just talk a little bit more about that, and then we'll get into some concluding lessons. So on the bottom right here, I have one more note that we're going to talk about, and this gets into chapter 4. Chapter 4 gives more detail about the duties of the different tribes of Levi, but it also numbers the working Levites. So, by the way, just kind of like as a connection... Do you remember how old Jesus was when he started his ministry? He was 30 years old. Do you know how old a Levite had to be to actually begin working actively? 30 years old. So in verse 3, from 30 years old and upward even to 50 years old, that's going to be the number of working Levites. So you have on the board here, I don't know if you can all see it, it's small font, but it's 8,580. So an even smaller number now of Levites who are actually participating in the work. Still more than the priests. You have three priests, three, and 8,580 working Levites to assist them, to help, to teach, to bear the burden, and to also take care of the tabernacle and to guard it. 
One of the things we've seen already with the responsibility that I think is really important is the importance that the Levites guard the tabernacle. Was the tabernacle this holy place where God would dwell? Was this going to be a place where anybody just in any way and with any attitude, could they just like waltz right up to the tabernacle and just treat it as a common thing? No, the Levites were appointed to guard the tabernacle. You saw it already in the scripture reading and in some things I've read as a summary that the layman, the stranger, who thinks to approach God's tabernacle in the wrong way or, God forbid, go inside of it, they're going to be put to death. And so priests and Levites had to guard with reverence God's presence at the center of the tabernacle. Doesn't that make sense, though? I mean, imagine you go to Washington, D.C., right? Places like the Pentagon or some of the monuments that are there, by the doorways and at popular walkways, what are you going to find? You're going to find guards. And by the way, do you think they take their job seriously? But they're appointed to guard what's precious and what needs to be approached with reverence, right? Whether it be a building where very important work is happening or a monument that they don't want it vandalized, they don't want it messed with, they want it protected. That's similar to what the Levites were to do for the tabernacle. And I think what we need to do in protecting with reverence who God is to us and what he's done for us, right? So a further responsibility they had in chapter 4 is they would need to carry everything involved the tabernacle. All the objects, the tapestries, the framework. I want to show you some of the passages that outline this in chapter 4. So we're going to start with the Kohathites. Kohath. So look at verse uh, 15. Chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 15. When Aaron and his, and his sons have finished covering the holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is to set out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them, so that they will not touch the holy objects and die. These are the things in the tent of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. So really quick, before we read a couple more verses with Kohath, Aaron and his sons, that is three people, they had to go inside of the tabernacle and actually cover, in actually multiple layers, the things inside of the tabernacle. Because did you catch in verse 15, if any of those objects inside of the tabernacle are touched, even by Kohath, who is supposed to carry them, they're going to drop dead. And by the way, that happened one time with Uzzah. You remember he inappropriately tried to catch the ark as it was falling, and boom, he's dead. And so Aaron had to cover the objects of the sons, cover them thoroughly. So by the way, when they were carrying them, you wouldn't actually see the gold, because they were you know, layered with gold. You would actually see like cloth or leather, and you just kind of see like an object generally covered in cloth and leather. So anyway, Kohath could only carry these objects, these holy objects, after they were covered. And then look further at um, verse 17. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, Do not let the tribe of the families of the Kohathites be cut off from among the Levites, but do this to them that they may live and not die when they approach the most holy objects. Aaron and his sons shall go in and assign each of them to his work and to his load. Notice this. But they shall not go in to see the holy objects even for a moment or they will die. So 
just kind of consider the reverence again. Like, they can't even look at these things. So there's no, like, you know, Aaron and his sons go in and, like, ah, let me take a look. Like, boom, you're dead. You know, this all had to be handled with so much solemn seriousness. Handling these objects needed to be handled with so much reverence. This was such a priority that God was putting on the responsibility that they had. So Kohath, the holy objects. Um, I'm not going to read these next ones for the sake of time, but I'll I'll point them out. In chapter 4 again, verse 24 through 26, Gershon is assigned to carry the tapestries. So the tabernacle is actually covered by four layers of material, like light wouldn't even pass through, and then the top layer was a thick leather. So the top of the tabernacle, this tent, would actually be like an animal skin at the top. And it was like different... Um, different fabrics that were all clasped together to form one gigantic form. So they had to carry all of these tapestries. And then Merari, in chapter 4, 31 through 32, they had to carry the heavy stuff. So there were pillars made of bronze, pillars, well, wood overlaid with bronze, and there were pillars, wood overlaid with gold. There were boards of wood overlaid with gold. There were bars of gold there were, um, like, what are they called? Uh, there are things at the bottom of the boards that would hold them in place, and they were also made out of a very heavy material. I think it was, I think it was silver that they were made out of. So you have all these heavy objects, and Merari gets to carry kind of the skeleton of the tabernacle, all the really heavy stuff. And maybe this is helpful. I've heard this, and this has been really helpful for me. This might sound silly, but... Um, Gershon carries the tapestries. So Gershon, G. So like Gershon carries the girly things. So like the fabrics, which would have been like purple things, blue things. So Gershon carries the girly things. Um, Merari, M, manly. So (laughs) Merari carries the manly things, like the gigantic pillars and the golden bronze things, which those wouldn't have been covered. Those like you'd see the giant gold pillars they're carrying. And then Kohath, H, the holy things. And everything was holy, but like the things inside of the tabernacle are like most holy things. So anyway, you know, God put all these things here for us to kind of like know these things. And it is important to know these things. And then so then on the east of the tabernacle, which would be the entrance, Moses and then the three priests would be camped there. So you'd see like these few people camped in front of the tabernacle. So that's what you have in the first four chapters. You have God giving structure to the camp as they prepare to leave. He's organizing the camp. He's assigning some concluding responsibilities to the camp. He's giving a charge to the Levites about why they exist, the importance of their work, what they need to carry. He's splitting up responsibilities. And again, all of this creates a very important structure. So... Before we get into some concluding lessons, one general lesson that's kind of like an introduction to lessons, God is a God of order. We saw that in Genesis chapter one, right? Six days of creation and then seventh day of resting. Basically like one or two two things happen at a time each day. It's all very structured. God is a God of structure and order. And sometimes there can be this ideology that, ah, you know, things don't really have meaning unless it's, you know, organic and fluid and things aren't planned and they're more spontaneous, you know, like 
ah, having like order and structure that just hinders acts of love. And what we find with God is that that's not the case. We're going to see that a lot in the book of Numbers, that when God speaks structure into existence, that structure enhances and accomplishes his purpose, right? So when there's structure, not that we want to create structures that God did not create, but when there is structure, abiding within that structure enhances and accomplishes God's purpose, right? So other lessons. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, This is one of my favorite verses that kind of speaks to the importance of books like Leviticus and Numbers is going to focus a lot on the Levites and priests, a lot. Um, It's almost like an extension of Leviticus in that way. It's just there is a lot about priests and Levites. I'll talk more about what's on the board after we read this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. And just think about how this passage in Peter helps make the priesthood that we just read about and their responsibilities a little more relevant. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. And coming to him is to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, and note, note this, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So before we get more into this, Levites and priests, so easily, they had the most valuable and defined work in the wilderness, easily. Like the other tribes, (laughs) I think like a lot of times, maybe they were thinking like, what do we do, you know? But the Levites and the priests, They had the clearest work. They had the busiest work. They had the most valuable work. The Levites needed to be full throttle in the wilderness. And when they didn't do that work, when they neglected it, the nation suffered for it. It can seem random, but when there's problems in the wilderness, the very next chapter, God will say, oh, by the way, the sacrificial system and the animals and coming to the altar. It can seem random. It's not. What God is saying, this bigger failure is because the Levites and the priests need to get busy in their work. And if the priests and the Levites aren't neglecting their work, that will build up the nation. They'll have the faith and the attitude that they need to have to walk through the wilderness and conquer the land. So it's critical that as priests, in verse 9, we being a royal priesthood, Just like they needed to learn their work in the wilderness and embrace it and not be lazy about it, if there are big spiritual failures in this church, it's not because of that big failure itself. I've mentioned things like this before. 
It's a failure on an individual level. The priests had a work to do, and if that work was neglected, the whole nation suffered for it. And if the nation was not valuing the priests and what they were there for, they were going to suffer for it. We need to value what First Peter is talking about, that we're offering spiritual sacrifices and we're appointed as a royal priesthood to proclaim the excellencies of God. By the way, even if there's not you know, some visible big failure here, if we're not doing our work as priests, even if we can't see ourselves suffering from it, will the community around us suffer from it? Will evangelism be as effective if we're not doing the work God has appointed as priests? It will. So it's critical to learn and embrace this valuable work that God has given us, that we are a holy nation and that we are a royal priesthood, that we are a part of this bigger thing that God is seeking to accomplish if we will embrace the identity he's given us in his son. Next lesson, and this is the last one, Galatians 6. Galatians chapter 6. So this, this relates to the fact that everything in the tabernacle, the priests, the Levites, they had to carry these different objects with these different weights. And even though some things were heavier than others, it was all essential and it all needed to be carried along. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, and not in regard to another. For each will bear his own load. So I want to think back on numbers really quick, right? So imagine you're walking through the wilderness. Let's say you're a Levite, right? Let's say you're carrying a pillar. And let's say the priest didn't really do a good job of assigning the duties. And you and one other guy are carrying a bronze pillar. And it's the wilderness, right? So you're sweating and you're getting hot and your shoulder feels like it's going to give out. You're panting, you're exhausted. People are passing you. And then somebody's carrying a few tent pegs and swinging them around and just kind of walking happily along and you see him pass by you. How are you going to feel? It's like, are you kidding me? Like, why does he get to bear this lighter load than I do? Well, that's the load he was assigned, right? There are different things, different values, and they needed to be carried. And Different people would carry different things. So with this church, there may be brethren who have heavier burdens. Maybe one person in their life isn't really very heavy. Like things are actually going pretty well. And then another person is just crushed under the weight of life's circumstance. Do you think it's a temptation to think, I despise the fact that this person over there just seems to have it all together. Everything's going good for them. That's the point of Galatians 6. We may have to bear different loads, but ultimately we just have to recognize we just need to do our best to serve each other as we are wandering through the wilderness. So let's get back to that person literally being crushed under the weight of that pillar, right? Let's say you're a Levite and nobody was assigned to help that person with the pillar, but you notice it and you have nothing. Or maybe you're that person like flailing along with the pegs and you notice like, wow, these people look like they're about to collapse. What are you going to do? Are they supposed to just drop the pillar and move on and be like, well, there's other pillars. What's the big deal? No, you help carry it. 
if you notice that there's something that needs to be done, just get right up there underneath it. If there needs to be more help, just yell, hey, we need a little help. Could you bear this load with us, right? So everything needed to reach the destination. Everything, everything was holy. Every one of us, every one, we are all holy. So may God help us to carry the weight of our mutual burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. That's the lesson for this morning. Um, If you're not a part of God's kingdom, the joy of being in the wilderness, even though we suffer tribulations here of various kinds, the joy of God's promises so far eclipses those things even now. To be a child of God is the greatest achievement we can hope to attain. If you're not a child of God, I urge you respond today. Don't leave here without obeying the gospel and becoming a part of God's kingdom. If there's anything we can do for you in your faith this morning, please bring it forward while we stand and sing. Invitation song.